Today we're going to be, be talking about coming out of complacency. And you might be thinking, well, if I'm at ASI, there's no way that I'm complacent. Because I have realized that I've been called to God's work, that I've been chosen for his purpose, and I am committed to following him wherever he takes me. And that's a wonderful vision, that's a, a wonderful uh, commitment that we've made. But you know, today we're going to talk about actually taking it one step further beyond the com commitment phase and what that actually means and how important that is to each one of our lives. All right, so let's talk a little bit about stress. And when you think of the word stress, do you think of that usually in a good positive connotation or kind of like, ah, I'm stressed out, I don't, I don't like that, and that makes me feel stressed, right? So we don't always think about stress from a good standpoint. Now, you've all probably heard of what, something we call a word association game. So this is an example of a word association game. So here is the word star. And so what you're supposed to do with a word association game is just say whatever word comes to your mind related to star. And so then you can see in this word association game, someone came up with universe, sky, Hollywood, like a Hollywood star, billion, movie, firmament, shine. So all these different words that are related to star, right? What if we did that same thing with the word stress? What kind of words would come up in your mind with the word stress? What would you associate that with? Illness? What's that? Burnout. What else? Strength. What else? Uptight. High blood pressure. Pain in the neck. Yes. So you can see that most of the words that we associate with stress are not positive words. And I want to challenge that point of view. I want to challenge that perspective today that maybe not all stress is necessarily bad stress. And how can we actually turn stress into something that is a blessing in, instead of a curse. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about stress. And first we're going to talk a little bit about the common effects of negative stress and how that can have a really negative effect on our bodies and our minds. And then we're going to talk about how we can turn stress into something that actually facilitates growth and learning. All right, so the definition of stress from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is a physical, chemical, or emotional factor that causes bodily or mental tension, strain, or pressure. So again, even the dictionary is not so positive about stress. And what about these statistics that they've done from looking at stress in America? Well, Researchers from Carnegie Mellon University analyzed data from 1983, 2006, and 2009. What do you think? Do you think stress is decreasing or do you think stress is increasing in America? It's increasing. You're absolutely right. Self-reported stress levels have increased 10 to 30 percent in the last three decades. And who do you think had it the worst? What population of the people that were surveyed had the worst stress levels? Do you think it was men? Do you think it was women? Do you think it was younger people, older people? What do you think? 
Women. <laughs> and what do the men think? Maybe the men would say men. Well, actually, women, young people, and low-income Americans were the most stressed. However, men's stress levels increased more over time than women's, rising 25% since 1983 versus 18%. So even though overall women's stress levels are still a little higher, us men are quickly catching up. So what are some of the things that actually stress you? What are some of the things that stress you? So there's a Stress in America survey that has examined how stress affects health and well-being of, the, of adults living in the United States. In 2015, they reported an overall um, increase in stress level with greater percentage of, of adults reporting extreme levels of stress than in 2014. So what were some of the significant stressors? What do you think stresses people out the most? Yes, finances, number one. Money, 67%. What else? Work, 65%. Someone said time. Yeah, that didn't make it on here, but I agree. That's a huge stressor. Family responsibilities, 54%. Personal health concerns, 51%. And health problems affecting the family. So you can see that money, work, family responsibilities, health concerns, these are all huge things impacting people today. And then the economy as well. It's pretty amazing to me. You can see that personal health concerns and health problems affecting the family, sometimes we think, oh, I'm fine, you know, I'm pretty healthy. But wow, having someone close to you that has a serious illness can stress you out a lot as well. So what about, uh, we did talk about gender, so we'll, we'll go quickly through this. What about health concerns? Well, over the last few years, you've also seen United States adults having increasingly poor health, both physically and mentally. And certainly that's going to, we're going to see here in just a few minutes how that's closely linked with stress. And what about the generations? So it's interesting to think about which generations are actually the most stressed. Now, does this surprise you that actually the younger people are actually reporting more stress levels than the older people. Does that surprise you, anyone here? You think that young people, you know, they're buoyant, they have lots of energy, they have lots of zest and zeal for life. Why would they be feeling stressed at such a young age? So, because these are, we're looking at millennials, we're looking at Generation Xers. Why would they be feeling so much stress? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of all these factors that, that you all are saying. There's different things. There's a lot of pressure nowadays. Pressure to perform, pressure to compete, pressure to be better. You know, I talk to, sometimes I have some, younger, some of my younger patients who are in grade school or, or high school, and it's amazing the amount of extracurricular activities and even homework and school-related stress that they have it really can start to wear on them over time. I remember when I was in school, I actually had time outside of school to be a kid. 
to have fun, to play, to connect with uh, peers and go out in the woods and, and do all these things. But nowadays, it seems like kids are so pressured in, in multiple ways that that stress level is building. So time is an issue for them. The overload of work, the competition, the expectations to perform, media, being constantly bombarded with gadgets and, and messages, it is almost impossible for them to escape and have peace. So you can see that in American culture, we are very quickly on the road to burnout. And here is what we have uh, called the stress curve. And you can see that at the beginning of the stress curve, when there's all the way on the left, there's not very much stress, then what happens? It says, if you can't read it very well, inactive and laid back. So in other words, if you have too little stress, then that can be a problem, right? You get lazy. But if you get in the middle where you have a little bit of stress pushing you in a healthy way and giving you some urgency to move forward and get out of bed and to perform to a certain degree, then you actually have optimum level of stress and you actually have the best performance. But if you get too much stress, what starts happening? especially if that stress goes on too long. You start getting into the exhaustion, the orange phase there, and then eventually you get into the anxiety, panic, and anger. And finally, you get to the place where you break down and burn out. So what does that mean, burnout? Well, burnout is to the point where you are emotionally exhausted. And you start having a lack of personal satisfaction or accomplishment. The same work that you used to do, that you used to find meaning and purpose in, is just not doing it for you anymore. And finally, depersonalization. So what does depersonalization mean? That means that basically you start treating people, those around you, instead of like people, like commodities. So in other words, you start using people for what they can do for you and not really caring about how it affects them. So those are some symptoms that we are getting way, way too stressed out. All right, so let's talk a little bit about our own life. Should Christians feel stressed? Have any of you ever felt guilty because you felt stressed? I know I have, because I, I, I've thought, you know, I shouldn't feel stressed as a Christian, right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Here's a few texts. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, trials, stress, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Okay, so Jesus is saying, look, I overcame the problems for you. You're going to have some stress, but be of good cheer. What about this one in Isaiah 26.3? You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. I've wrestled with that one. I don't know about all of you. Because I, I, I've said, Lord, my mind is not always at perfect peace. Whose mind here is always at perfect peace? And if you raise your hand, you're lying. <laughs> what about this one from Paul? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, 
with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Okay, so here we have that peace of God that is going to guard our hearts and minds. But this text, I think, gives us a little further perspective into how we might actually get to that point of having peace. What does it say? It says, be anxious for nothing. Okay. And then there's a recipe that follows. This is how you can be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Can any of you think of people in the Bible who wrestled with stress? I, exactly. People are naming some of the greatest people in Bible history. In fact, if you go through all of the heroes of our Bible faith, every single one of them had significant stress that they went through. So does that mean that they weren't God's people? Does that mean they weren't converted? Does that mean that they were not a good Christian? No. But you see what they were, what, what they were doing during that time of stress is that, like Jacob, for example, he was wrestling, right? He was wrestling, and what he was wrestling with is that, and he was letting, letting God know his requests, he was letting him know his problems, and he was wrestling with God and with himself. He was trying to say, I want to take my thoughts away from what? From myself, from the problem at hand. In, in, in uh, the example of Jacob, it was from Esau, his brother coming and killing him, right? And even his sin that had brought this upon him. And I want to focus it where? So I want to... I'm wrestling with God. I'm wanting to focus away from the problem, away from myself, and focus. What does Isaiah 26.3 say? Whose mind is stayed on you. In other words, it is only when our minds are stayed on the Lord that we can have that perfect peace. But see, that's why we have those, those moments of stress is because our mind vacillates. It vacillates constantly from going to the problem, from going to ourselves, to going to the Lord. And so there's this wrestling that occurs. And it's not until that moment of complete submission to God's ways and his doings in our lives that we can actually experience the peace and actually experience that deep fellowship with the Lord. So don't feel bad if you have those times of wrestling, of, of those times of stress. But instead, and we're going to talk more about this later, we need to embrace these times as times for learning and growth, realizing these are opportunities, opportunities to actually connect deeper with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the three steps to practical peace. <clears throat> the three steps to practical peace. <clears throat> So God uses stress to accomplish his purpose in our lives through three primary ways that we're going to talk about. Number one, consequences. Number two, revelation. 
Now the consequences, are, that's probably pretty clear. In other words, we see the consequences of our choices and that actually can help us, lead us to, to change. Revelation, God reveals, he opens our eyes to our weaknesses using stress. Number three, glorification. Through stressful times, God's name can be glorified. But before we get into these three steps, we have to understand something very basic that is very important and has opened my eyes and made my ministry working with patients and with people and even understanding myself and family members very, very, it's been very important and very eye-opening. And that is the concept of attachment. Has anyone ever heard here about attachment theory? Okay, we've had, we have a few hands. So attachment, what, what we talk about in the mental health field when we're talking about attachment theory, the definition is a set of concepts that explain the emergence of an emotional bond between an infant, a baby, and primary caregiver, and the way in which this bond affects the child's behavioral and emotional development into adulthood. In other words, attachment is that sense of connectedness to the person that takes care of us in infancy, okay? So when that baby is born, then it's helpless, it's insecure, it's unsafe, it is a scary world. They have no, no idea what in the world is going on. But as they see the loving mother come and meet their needs, they start to gain that trust in that caregiver and start to attach in a healthy way. They start to feel safe, connected, loved. So in healthy attachments, and there's, there's, we're going to briefly touch on three different attachment styles that are described. In healthy attachment, the parents are quick to respond sensitive to the needs, and consistent. In other words, when the baby is crying, the mother comes and says, oh, you know, what's going on? How, is, is, the, is the diaper dirty? Is the baby hungry? Is it tired? And so they're, they're responding quickly to the needs of, of the child. And so the child starts to believe, my needs will be met. I can trust others. And I am a lovable person. So these individuals that have healthy attachment in childhood end up having healthier relationships as adults. So they can have more meaningful relationships because that, that has been modeled to them in childhood. They are more empathetic because they were shown empathy from their parents. They're able to empathize with others. They're able to set healthy boundaries because they realize that the love of other people should not be contingent on whether they're doing what they want them to do. In other words, love should be unconditional. So I can say no to you, and that shouldn't mean that you start mistreating me and abusing me. But what about when attachment goes wrong? What happens then? And, and we're going to explore that in, in just, just a moment. But first I wanted to read an interesting quote from Desire of Ages. And this, will, this fits in really nicely. It says, Among the Jews, the twelfth year 
was the dividing line between childhood and youth. On completing this year, a Hebrew boy was called a son of the law and also a son of God. Now, you might be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with attachment? Well, let me explain. So, remember, in healthy attachment, when you have that sense of real deep security, that that sense of of my needs are going to be met, I can trust others, then your parents in childhood are like God to you. They're like God to you. They, I mean, your parents might be teaching you about, about God, but your parents in a, in a big way are really like God. They're bigger than life to you when you're a child. But as you transition from into young adulthood, from age 12 to 13, you're supposed to do what? You're supposed to, instead of becoming a son of your parents or a daughter of your parents, become a son or daughter of God. You see? So, if you have a healthy attachment to your parents where you, you understand, I can trust my parents. My parents are trustworthy. They're dependable. They're safe. They're secure. Then that transition from childhood in trusting your parents to being able to trust God can be pretty smooth, right? But what happens when attachment goes wrong? What if your parents aren't dependable? What if they aren't kind? What if they are not safe? Then what happens as you're supposed to transition from young adulthood or from childhood into young adulthood? Who becomes God for you? Can you go to God? Can you really trust him or not? So what happens when attachment goes wrong? Well, let's look at two attachment styles that are problematic. One is called avoidant attachment. And in this sort of attachment, the parents are distant and disengaged. In other words, the parents are providing the needs of the child physically. They're making sure they're well-fed. They're making sure that they have clothes. But they're lacking that emotional closeness. For example, a parent that is a workaholic. So the parent might be working super hard to provide all of the needs, but they aren't really emotionally available for the child. So what does the child start believing then? Well, the child starts believing my needs will probably not be met. My needs will probably not be met. It doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to get that emotional reciprocity that I really need. I must not be a very worthwhile person if my parents aren't taking the time to really connect to me. And as adults... These people, they start saying, you know what? Why should I even try with close relationships? Because I'm not going to get what I need out of those close relationships anyway. So they avoid closeness or emotional connection. And they become distant. They become critical. They become rigid, intolerant. And they say things like, I am comfortable without close emotional relationships. It is very important to me to feel independent and self-sufficient. I prefer not to depend on others or have others depend on me. So these are the people that tend to say, you know what, I'm not going to let you in. I, I need to just keep my distance because i got to stay safe. So that's one type of attachment problem. Another one that we'll touch on is ambivalent attachment. 
Now this type of attachment, the parents are inconsistent in the response. Sometimes they're sensitive, sometimes they're there for the child, and other times they're neglectful. The example, classic example here would be the alcoholic parent. So with the alcoholic parent, sometimes they're drunk, right? Sometimes they're hungover, sometimes they're sober. And in each of those different states, the child is not quite sure what to expect. They don't know, okay, is, is dad going to be happy? Or is he going to be beating me and abusing me? Is he going to be just his normal self? And they're always walking on eggshells. So that leads to feeling like I can't depend on my needs being met. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm always walking on eggshells. And so as adults, they become anxious and insecure. They become controlling. And the reason they become controlling, by the way, is because in a relationship, because these people, as opposed to the, to the people that are avoidant, actually crave the, that close emotional connection. But because they're not secure and they're anxious that this person that they're getting close to might hurt them, they try to control the other person instead of giving them perfect freedom of choice in that relationship. Does that make sense to everybody? So it can become a very unhealthy dynamic where they're, they're trying to get really close to people, but they're controlling at the same time. They blame others. They're sometimes erratic and unpredictable because that's what they saw mirrored to them in childhood. They're sometimes charming, and they say things like, I want to be completely emotionally intimate with others, but I often find that others are reluctant to get as close as I would like. And it's no wonder, because those others that they're trying to get super close to don't want to be controlled, right? So they're like, stay, stay back a little. This is too much. I am uncomfortable being without close relationships, but I sometimes worry that others don't value me as much as I value them. So, remember what I asked earlier. When we're supposed to transition from that point of becoming a son or daughter of our parents to a son or daughter of God and opening our hearts completely to God and trusting him fully, and if we've gone through some of these attachment issues in childhood, do you think that that's going to be difficult? To trust our hearts fully to God? Because our parents have modeled what God is like to us. That's what our picture of God actually develops. And so if we actually have that sense that God is like my parents, I can't depend on him, or maybe um, I'm not sure exactly how God's going to act in this situation. Maybe he's going to be nice to me one minute and punishing the next. Do you think that helps to foster a healthy uh, sense and peace and security about God? No, right? So what do we do instead of attaching to God when we make that transition into young adulthood? What do we do? What do you think? How do we solve that problem psychologically? We actually take that role on ourselves. We say, well, I'm not sure I can depend on God to supply my needs. I'm not sure I can really trust God. And so instead... I'm going to take God's role. I'm going to provide the safety and security and meet my own needs to make sure that I'm okay. 
And without even realizing it, we start to slip into very unhealthy coping mechanisms to try to give us that sense of safety and security. Now, one thing that I've realized is that even if we had a healthy attachment with our parents in childhood, all of us, because we live in a messed up world, in a sinful world, all of us in some way or another have had those attachment systems damaged. And I can share, even from my personal experience, I had a very healthy, strong, secure attachment with my parents, particularly my mother. Praise God for, for what she did and gave me. She provided me with a secure foundation. But you know, right around the age of 12, 13, my parents sat us all down and they said, we're getting a divorce. What do you think that did to my brain? It set me in complete fight-or-flight mode, right? I was stressed out. And that sense of security was shattered. No longer did I have that sense of, oh, I can trust my, that everything is going to be okay and my family is going to be okay and, and everything is going to be taken care of. Suddenly, the rug was pulled out from under all of our feet. So what is the result of that? We've already talked about the idea that we actually take over the role of God in our own lives to help us feel that sense of safety and security. And really the result is we, even though, even though we try to take on that role of God, guess what? That predisposition, that desire, that need to attach is so strong in us that we still attach to something or someone. We all need that sense of safety and, and feeling in control. We yearn for connectedness. But because we've put up that wall, because we haven't really been able to trust ourselves completely into the hands of God, and we're also often cutting ourselves off from healthy relationships because of our own damage, because of our own problems that we've gone through, we get into fight-or-flight mode, which is really a way of trying to take care of ourselves. And what do I mean by fight or flight? Well, the, the fight part would be what I call the performance trap. In other words, I need to just be stronger. I need to work harder. I need to perform better. I need to have more control and power so that I can be safe. Or the flight part, that's where we go into escape mode. What are some of the things that we use as escape to deal with life, to help us feel safe and secure? What are some things that you've all maybe seen other people deal with to go into flight mode? Work. Yeah, even work, right? And that can, that can sometimes be part of both. It can be the fight. I want to be more secure, have more money, but it can also be the flight because I don't want to deal with the other problems I'm facing in, with life, so I'm going to avoid facing those problems by going into work. What else? Yeah, drinking alcohol, right? Any kind of addiction, pornography, that sort of thing. We will tend to do whatever it takes to give us that sense of safety and security. But of course we know, right? Now, how, how much more safe and secure are you when you've drank half a bottle of tequila than you were when you were sober? <laughs> are, you, are you more or less safe than before you started drinking? You're quite a bit less safe, right? That's why they won't let you get behind the wheel of a car to drive. <laughs> and, and yet, 
Our emotions are so strong they can fool us. And that's what we're really seeking. We're seeking that emotional peace that can't be manufactured by anything that we can do, but only comes from God. So, what does that lead to when we're in that mode? Well, they did an interesting study here over the last few years, and they actually looked at what happens when people deal with stress in, in unhealthy ways. Well, actually what they looked at is the amount of stressors that children experienced in childhood, and then how that affected them in adulthood. And so they called it the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And that's why A-C-E-S. So truth about ACEs, the truth about the adverse childhood experiences. And basically they took over 17,000 people from the Kaiser Permanente healthcare system in California and they studied and they said, what does childhood stress do to children when they grow up and become adults? Well, they looked at different sorts of stressors. They looked at abuse, for example, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. They looked at physical neglect. They looked at emotional neglect. They looked at household dysfunction, having a family member with mental illness in, in the house, having an incarcerated relative, having a mother treated violently, substance abuse, and divorce. So these were some of the stressors that these children went, went under. And so what are the consequences to undergoing these, these, these stressful things that actually disrupt the, the attachment systems in our mind. So remember, I said that God uses stress in three ways, with three steps, to help us actually become victorious in the Christian life and to grow closer to him. So step one is the consequences, right? So step one, what impact do these stressors have? So here we see that with behavior, lack of physical activity. What do you think this person might be doing sitting on the couch? Watching TV, right? So imagine this person has been maybe abused as a child. They don't want to think about that. They don't feel safe. Maybe they're even afraid of leaving the house. And so they go into flight mode, avoidance mode, escape mode, and they're sitting in front of the TV watching their life go by, right? Smoking. Alcoholism, drug use, missed work. So all these things are increased. The more stress you have, the more likely you are to actually engage in these unhealthy behaviors. And those unhealthy behaviors, those fight or flight behaviors, then translate into other problems like diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, STDs, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, and broken bones. So, in the end, we can see the consequences of the stress of both that's been in inflicted on us from the world, which then turns into the stress that we inflict on ourselves, right? Do you see how that happens? So we've been stressed because we've been wounded by the, by the world. Maybe it was our parents. Maybe it was someone else. Maybe it was, uh, you know, problems at work. But we've all been under great deals of stress and problems that have disrupted our attachment systems, that have made us go into fight or flight and made 
us make decisions that are unhealthy, and then we inflict stress upon ourselves through those unhealthy decisions, and then the consequences are that we become physically, spiritually, emotionally, and socially destitute. So this is really where we hit rock bottom. And you've probably all heard that term. It's usually used when, when, when someone with an addiction problem comes to that place of rock bottom. But I would like to say that that can definitely happen not just with addiction, but with all sorts of stress, right? We were talking about burnout before. Hitting rock bottom with burnout can be just as bad. So at that point, what happens to the individual? Well, the individual awakes to their need of something better. So can you start seeing already how this, the consequences of stress, even though it's not fun to feel physically or spiritually or emotionally or socially destitute, that how it can be a blessing because it awakens people to their need. And that's why Jesus said, blessed are what? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are willing to recognize that they are destitute. Unfortunately, so many of us are not even willing to recognize how destitute we really are when we're faced with those consequences. And I deal with that every day, that people come in and they say, just fix me. I just want a pill. I want something magical to take away the pain, but I want to continue on with the same behaviors, the same way of functioning. Now, after this, now at this point, really, Many people, when they get to that rock-bottom point, they're willing to actually make a change. They're willing to make a commitment. And oftentimes, they even um, are willing to make a commitment to Christ. Now, the good news is, when we make that commitment to Christ, something happens. And sometimes we think, you know what, that's the end, that's great. I, I, I realized that my life was a mess. I was addicted to pornography. I was addicted to drugs. I was addicted to work. I was in that fight or flight mode and it just got me to that rock bottom point. And so I committed my life to Christ and now things are perfect, right? Is that the way the Christian life goes? No, it doesn't. And thank God. Because when we commit our lives and hearts to Christ, that is but the beginning of a beautiful journey that he wants to take us on. And that's what we're going to explore, is how the Lord wants us to actually awaken to seeing where we've been damaged in those attachment systems, where we become attached to those things of the world, where we've learned to trust in money or work or alcohol or unhealthy relationships or whatever it might be, and helps us to recognize where we've become attached to those things instead of attached to him. And how he actually helps us through stress to break those attachments and actually attach more closely to him. So it's a beautiful thing that, that the Lord does. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that the name of, of this conference or the, the motto or the theme has to do with commitment, which is absolutely important. But you know, there's another step in the Christian life, and that's really what we want to dig uh, even more deeply in here over the next moments that we have together. So step two. So step one was 
the consequences. So God uses the consequences in order for us to experience what that, that our decisions, that what, the way we've been living is not working well. Step two is revelation. So let's start with a question. So Jeremiah asks this question, and he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked, or incurably sick. Who can know it? Now, is he talking about cardiac disease? Is he talking about people having heart attacks here? No. Jeremiah is talking about the heart that is in the mind. In other words, the emotional part of who we are, the place that, that Jesus was talking about when he says, out of the heart comes blasphemies and adulteries and fornications and lies and murders and all these things, right? That's what Jeremiah is talking about, which is really out of our mind, right? So Jeremiah is saying, the mind is incurably sick. Who can know it? So what's the answer? Does anyone know verse 10? Because we often stop with verse 9. What's the answer? Don't you want an answer? Why does everyone know verse 9 and they don't know verse 10? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. What does it mean to test? To measure, yes. To test and also to, to, to um, go through a, even sometimes a difficult experience, right? I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Praise God. God is willing to take us through trials and difficulties and stress so that we can actually start seeing the fruit of our doings, the fruit of what is actually happening in our minds, and it can lead us to a decision point to, to do things differently. And the reason for that is because under stressful conditions, we are actually exposed. The heart is exposed. So under normal, non-stress, alert conditions, this is the brain. And I know you can't see it so well, but just pay attention here. The frontal lobe, the front part of the brain, is lit up and is helping us to behave well. Okay? That's why when we are chipper, well-rested, well-dressed, good-smelling, and at ASI... We can do everything right and say everything right, and things look perfect on the outside. But what happens when we're under stress conditions? Well, under stress conditions, there's something that, that occurs that is very, very scary because it helps us actually see what's in the heart. In other words, the frontal lobe, you see how it turned to green to like gray? It shuts down. And at the same time, the activity down here, which is the emotional part of the brain, increases. So what happens? Well, the emotions take over. You've been hijacked. And what neuroscientists call that is bottom-up control instead of top-down control. In other words, instead of the logical part of your brain telling you you shouldn't do that because it'll get you into trouble, the emotions have now taken over and you're doing whatever you feel like doing, whatever your habits are telling you to do, whatever you've practiced doing in your thoughts or your behavior in the past. So the automatic behavior takes over. So can you start to see how this then starts to reveal what's in our hearts? In other words, when we lose that filter, when we're stressed out, when we're upset, then 
there's often a lot of ugliness that can come out. And you know what? That is a blessing. Because we're actually having an opportunity to see what is in the depths of our heart. And you might not feel like it's a blessing at the time, but it is a blessing. Because the Lord is giving us an opportunity to see, wow, maybe I'm not quite as surrendered. Maybe I'm not quite as perfect as I thought. Because, you know, if we were so perfect, then even under the moments of the most intense stress or sleep deprivation, what would come out would still be beautiful. But it's not. <laughs> At least not for me all the time. Maybe there's some people here where it's a lot more beautiful. Praise God for that. And, um, you know, we're all on that journey. Here is a quote from Acts of the Apostles where Ellen White writes, He who reads the hearts of men knows their weaknesses better than they themselves can know, know them. Just like Jeremiah said, right? In his providence, he brings these souls into different positions and varied circumstances that they may discover the defects that are concealed from their own knowledge. He gives them opportunity to overcome these defects and to fit themselves for service. Often he permits the fires of affliction to burn that they may be purified. So I love that quote because here Ellen White is saying these are people that are committed to Christ and yet we are all blinded to those weakness, weak spots of our character. Of, the, of our heart. And God, in his providence, he says, you know what? I, I see that Daniel has this weak area. He doesn't even see it himself. It's a blind spot. And isn't that the case? Like, so, so often, we don't see our own deficiencies, right? But I'm, I'm praise God that, that he does. And, and yet he's gentle. And he says, you know what? We're going to allow God, to, or allow Daniel, to go through this experience so that he actually has the opportunity to see what's in his heart. And as he sees that, he's going to reach a decision point and he's either going to hang on to that issue, that attachment, that unhealthy attachment, or he is going to choose something different. So the step two Christian, this is the process. At the beginning, they're committed but not submitted. In other words, they've committed to walk with the Lord and they have said, I, wa I want to follow you, Lord, because I see that the worldly way of doing things is not getting me any any good. I've just had all these stressful consequences, right? I just ended up with um, addiction and heart disease and broken relationships. So we say, I want to walk with you, Lord, but we haven't fully submitted to him because that process takes time. And we might have submitted everything that we know of, but God knows us better than we know ourselves. An example of that would be Peter. Does anyone remember that fine story? How Peter, he, had, he, he was committed, right? He was committed to Jesus. What did, what did Jesus say to him at the beginning of, of his ministry? He said, follow me, right? And Peter said, what? He said, did he say, no, Lord, I'm not going to commit to you. I'm not going to follow you. What did Peter say? He said, absolutely, and he left all. He left all to follow Jesus. That sounds like a commitment to me. That sounds like a big commitment. I mean, I'm not even sure that in some respects I've really gotten there. Like, to be able to just walk suddenly away from, from my livelihood, from everything that I've known, and follow Jesus, that's, that's a big deal. That's commitment, right? 
But does that mean that he was fully submitted? Was Peter submitted? He wasn't, right? And we see that. Now, Peter thought he was submitted. But we have to be very careful. Because we are going to deceive ourselves. And, and Peter did. Jesus said, you're going to deny me. And Peter said what? He said, no, no way. Everyone else is going to deny you, but not me. There's no way I'm going to deny you. And yet, under the period of stress, under the period of trial, what, what happened to Peter? He denied him, right? Do you see how that brought out of Peter what was really in his heart? Do you see how Peter actually came face to face with the truth that Jesus knew him much better than he knew himself? And I would have to say that this is where most of God's church is at. And I'm, that's not, you know, pointing the finger because I think that I'm usually there at this point too. And I'm, this, this talk is really just as much for me as it is for you. Because I, I'm saying, Lord, help me to get to the point where I'm not just committed to you, but I'm fully submitted to you so that in everything that becomes such a normal way of life that I am in that trusting mode with you. It doesn't matter what trial, what temptation, what difficulty, I'm going to fully trust in you. I'm not going to doubt your leading. And when that happens, we get into that step three, which is the glorification, which is really... We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But when we're at that point, that's the point where God's name can truly be glorified. Because all the trials, all the difficulties, all the stressors that come our way are opportunities to see him at work. And we are no longer going into fight or flight. We are no longer trying to take control and fix the situation or avoid addressing the issue. But just to make sure that we can understand <clears throat> that it is possible to have that experience of really detaching from the things of this world to attaching to the things of God. I just want to give you two quick examples. So attachments can change, and they change at what I call the decision point or the crisis point. And at that point, we have to actually choose either the new path, the new, which is not just a path theoretically, but a literal new path in our brain, or the status quo. And so the two examples that I want to touch on are falling in love and pregnancy. Falling in love and pregnancy. Before we do that, I think it would be wise, especially, I know we, how much time do we have? We're supposed to go till quarter till or five? Because I'm thinking it might be good just to take a real short break because I know... Well, let me put it this way. In um, mental health, um, from study, I, I know that people's attention spans are usually only about 45 minutes. And then you start falling asleep, and, 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 and your frontal lobe is just not going to work as well. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk about falling in love. So everyone likes a love story, right? But what actually is happening in the brain when we're falling in love? Well, I don't know about you, but... When I, when I fell in love with my wife, I had a real sense of euphoria and excitement. It, it didn't even take seeing her, and I was excited. All, all I had to do was picture her in my mind's eye, and I could already feel my heart starting to pound and started to have that sensation of excitement and just looking forward to seeing her. And, you know, it's interesting because falling in love, believe it or not, is actually a highly stressful event. <laughs> it is. 
And, and it's, a good, it's a good thing that the first stage of love is actually relatively short, usually a maximum of one year. Because if it wasn't, I don't think we would get much done at all after we fell in love, right? <laughs> because our mind would be constantly obsessing about that person. We couldn't get, the, get our thoughts off of them. We wouldn't be able to sleep very well, that sort of thing. So what's happening in the brain when we're actually falling in love? Well, there's two, two hormones called vasopressin and oxytocin, and they're the key players in our brain. Now, what's interesting is that these two chemical messengers in our brain actually have opposite effects on the fight-or-flight center of the brain, so, which is the amygdala there. Vasopressin actually increases the activity of the amygdala. So in other words, it, it increases the activity of the fight-or-flight. It says, oh, I don't know, this person, if, I don't know if they're really trustworthy. They might hurt you in some way, so maybe you should not give your heart completely to them. On the other hand, oxytocin decreases activity in the amygdala. So oxytocin calms down that fight-or-flight response, and oxytocin saying, no, it's fine. This person is wonderful. Give your heart to them. Open your heart. So what do you think determines which one wins out, the oxytocin or the vasopressin, right? Because there's this battle going on between the two of them. Well... The answer is, which one is more? So if there's more oxytocin, then that one will win out. But, but what determines whether there's more oxytocin? What actually determines whether there's more oxytocin or not is the, the past experience that we've had with other relationships and also the current behavior of that person in the relationship. In other words, if we've had really bad experiences with other relationships, then we're going to be very leery to enter into a new relationship. Also, if that person is acting really weird when we go on a date with them, maybe they're uh, looking at the uh, waiter or waitress and uh, they're, they're um, uh, flirting with other people or they're not reliable, they're not showing up on time, what do you think is going to happen? The brain, the vasopressin is actually going to increase in the brain and the brain is going to say, run away from that person because you're going to get hurt, you see? On the other hand, if they're reliable, they're showing you uh, love consistently and all the right messages, then the oxytocin is going to increase and win out. So what's interesting is that both of these actually impact the dopamine reward system. And in the end, so that it gives you that sense of reward and happiness and motivation to be with that person. And in, in the end, it actually starts disrupting what the brain pathways, the neural pathways. And so what's actually happening as you're falling in love with somebody, and this is why you often get kind of foggy-brained and googly-eyed when you're falling in love, is that there's neurological processes going on where the nerve cells are actually being disordered and you're opening your heart, you're opening that part of your brain to actually be able to attach to that person. Do you see what I'm saying? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. So let me give another example. Well, okay, on the next slide. So love de deepens after that initial falling in love. Then you start feeling more safe, calm, balanced with that person. Brain activity is normalized. And intimacy and commitment increase steadily. And you get the long-term health benefits of being in a committed, positive relationship. By the way, a lot of people, after they get through stage one of that falling in love, 
where, the, where they don't have those butterflies and those feelings of excitement anymore, they start thinking, oh, I'm not in love with that person anymore. Have you ever talked with young people that are like, oh, yeah, I broke up with them because I didn't have those same feelings for them anymore? <laughs> What's that? Yeah, there's no more magic, right? There's no more magic. And in fact, a lot of those relationships actually could have probably done just fine if they would have realized, no, that, it was just that stage one was getting over and now I was heading into stage two of falling in love, okay? And, so, and, and this stage is maybe not as exciting. You don't get those feelings of euphoria all the time, but it's actually much healthier, and so you actually ex experience a depth and a closeness in a relationship that you never would um, thought, thought could actually be. So it's a real blessing. Um, let's talk about pregnancy. So here's a quote from a study that said, the maternal brain is the very definition of a plastic organ. So remember, we're talking about how attachment is not permanent. In other words, attachments can change, right? which is a blessing. That's how we can heal from being attached to like drinking or work or whatever it might be to actually attaching to the things of God. So the maternal brain is a very definition of a plastic organ. Maternal behavior makes a rather abrupt appearance following childbirth. The transformation of an offspring, often offspring aversive virgin animal to an offspring seeking mother represents one of the most dramatic examples of behavioral flexibility in all of animal behavior. Have you ever heard of baby brain? <laughs> Up to 75% of women report short-term memory loss, forgetfulness, disorientation, lack of concentration, or reading difficulties during the peripartum period, which improve within one year after birth. So the brain is actually being disorganized. It's being changed during pregnancy. Research shows decreased verbal recall and prospective memory in women during late pregnancy and the early postpartum period. Do you think this is some, a stressor for the mother? as she is going through pregnancy. Do you think it's a stressor on her brain? Absolutely, it's very stressful. But thank God, memory problems likely due to, are likely due to the interplay between hormones and neuroplasticity that actually prepare the mother for the arrival and care of her young. Thus, a trade-off may occur with other cognitive abilities. And I would like to say there's a reorganization of priorities. In other words, as that, those hormones and all the changes that the mother's body is going through and the mother's brain starts going through, the nerve cells actually start detaching from the old connections and then they start opening themselves to actually be ready to attach to that child when it arrives. Does that make sense? Isn't that amazing the way that God created that? So, Yes, there's disorganization going on. You can't think clearly, but there's a reason for that. The reason is because the nerve cells are actually preparing themselves to detach from old priorities and attach to new priorities. Have you ever met mothers where before they were a mother, they were like, yeah, I'm going to be a career woman for the rest of my life. And then after they have the baby, suddenly it changes. Suddenly they're like, you know what? I, the moment I saw that precious child, all I wanted to do was take care of that child. I, 
I lost that, that desire to be a career woman any longer. Have any of you ever heard of people like that? Well, what happens, what happens there is that literally the brain as it's being torn apart, it's actually detaching from those old priorities from work and other things. And it's actually attaching to that little child and it's saying that is the more important priority. Isn't that beautiful? And praise God, he really blesses mothers because what happens is that um, initially you get a decrease in your total brain size, but later on, memory is enhanced during the late postpartum period and after weaning, suggesting an enduring effect of reproduction on cognition. Reproductive experience has persistent enhancing effects on spatial learning and memory. And the events of pregnancy and production of young may be considered enriching with a complex set of stimuli bathing the brain that results in persistent, if not permanent, outcomes. In other words, God, in healthy attachments, in healthy reprioritization, when we're detaching from things that really should have less priority anyway and attaching to better things, God blesses that abundantly. And even though there might be that, that, that time of haze where we can't think clearly, we can't remember things, we, we just, our brains are being disorganized, later on, as we're prioritizing the right things, our memory actually improves. We do better cognitively. Now, I wanted to share briefly a personal experience. And this is my daughter here, Eliana. And, you know, it's interesting because sometimes we, we pray and we say, Lord, help me to get to that point of not only commitment, but more full submission so that I can be more ready to work for you. Well, Eliana is a beautiful little girl, and she's uh, three years old right now. And Eliana has a beautiful meaning. You know what Eliana means? Well, it's a Hebrew name. So if we deduce that, the L part means what? God, right? And the Ana part means answers. God answers. And you know, her birth text is Jeremiah 33.3. And Jeremiah 33.3 says, Call upon me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. And I remember the day that she was born, and I found that text, and I said, this is the text that God's given me for her. And, but little did I know how, through having her in my life, how that has helped take me one step closer. And I'm not saying I'm completely there to being 100% submitted, but one step closer to being on that path to true submission to God. Not just the committed part, but the full submission. And you know what's actually happened is that as a medical professional, you get really um, trained. And of course, even from my childhood, like I shared earlier, I was... I, 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 I trained myself to, to say, you know, I need to be in control. I need to take care of myself because I had to protect myself after my family went into chaos, remember? And so there's this element that I've realized that I tend to go into fight mode. Not as much the flight mode anymore. That was before in teenagehood. 
But now it's more the fight mode. In other words, I need to perform harder. I need to be stronger. I need to fix things. And especially as a physician, you're supposed to fix everybody that comes to you, right? So I, but, but the thing is, and God is so wise and he's, he knows exactly what we need. Eliana, she's had some challenges. And she's developed epilepsy um, around the age of 10 months. And we didn't know what it was at first. And we've struggled and tried to figure out, you know, what's caused this and how can we fix it and how can we do this and how, you know, wrestled with all these things trying to, trying to fix her, trying to control the problem. And you know what? She still has epilepsy today. And that's hard. But, you know, it has made me wrestle day by day with the, with the Lord and say, Lord, I don't understand this, but you need to show me because I, I don't know what to do. I'm at the end of my knowledge. And that's hard for a physician to say, you know, especially when you have all these natural remedies and all these things and all these things you can explore. But the Lord is so good. And he's brought me to that point of submission saying, Lord, not our will, not my will, but your will be done in her. And if she, if she you know, keeps having the seizures, if she keeps, right, at this point she's not talking yet, if she never talks, glory be to your name because you have a purpose for that. Am I willing to submit to God in all things? So that brings us to the step three, becoming a step three Christian. Jesus, at the end of his life, his earthly life, his earthly ministry, he said a very important statement. He said a lot of very important statements. But in John, the 12th chapter, he said, Father, glorify thy name. That was the sounding point, the, the trumpet call of his entire life, wasn't it? Father, glorify thy name, not me, but let me glorify you. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And by the way, this verse is right there in the chapter that um, just previously he talks about a seed of grain that needs to die in order for it to bear fruit. And he says that we need to follow him the same way. In other words, we need to be so submitted to him that we're willing to detach from anything on, in, in this world and say, whatever you see as fit, glorify thy name. When we are fully submitted to God's will in our life, he can truly use us for his honor and glory. The stress, challenges, and trials, and difficulties only serve to show his faithfulness. Because now, no longer is it just focused on revealing our defects. That can still happen. I'm not saying we're completely perfect at that point. But what I am saying is that we're consistently submitted to his will, so much so that when the difficulties come, our automatic tendency, instead of going into fight or flight mode, our automatic tendency is to say, glorify thy name, I submit to thy will. And that's where we want to be, not just 50% of the time, not just 25% of the time, but 100% of the time. So, I knew this was going to happen. We only have a few minutes left, but, you know, so whoever needs to go can go. I, I know we're supposed to technically, I think, end at a quarter tell, um, but I'm going to keep going because this is 
something that I studied into. It's a case study that has been very helpful uh, uh, to me. So we're going to talk about George. Now, George was the son of a German tax collector. And I love stories about Germans because that's my heritage. He was educated on worldly principles by his father. Prior to age 10, he repeatedly stole government money. Age 11, he was sent to school to prepare for university study. By the way, his father wanted him to become a, um, a, a, a clergyman so that he, not because he was interested in religious things, but so that he could get a parish and then take care of his father later on and have enough money to do that. <laughs> so anyway, he said, study, this is uh, George writing, he says, studying, reading novels, and indulging in sinful practices were my favorite pastimes. My mother died suddenly when I was 14 years old. That night, I played cards until two in the morning and went to a tavern the next day. Her death made no lasting impression on me. Instead, I grew worse. By the way, what kind of attachment issue do you think that George had here? Do you think it was a healthy attachment or ambivalent or avoidant attachment? Yeah, I think it was probably an avoidant attachment disorder because he was, he was kind of just in his own world. Even his mother dying didn't really seem to affect him that much. The amazing thing is, somehow, this man, I'm going to give you the end results and then we want to look at what happened in between. Because <laughs> obviously he had a pretty rough start. In the end, he cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life. He established 117 schools, which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children. He received and dispersed 1,381,171 pounds, around 90 million pounds, which is about 117 million U.S. dollars in today's terms by the time of his death, primarily using the money for supporting orphanages and distributing Bibles, New Testaments, other religious texts, which were translated into 20 other languages. The money was also used to support other faith missionaries around the world, such as Hudson Taylor. He never, and this is one of the most amazing aspects, he never made requests for financial support, nor did he ever go into debt. He never asked a soul for money. And I'm not saying you're doing something wrong, if you, if you have a ministry and you're asking for support, okay? But this man said, you know what? I, I, I'm going to rely 100% on God. So how did he go through this, these three steps? Well, step one, it's pretty obvious. He had some bad consequences to his negative behavior. At the age of 16, he became an inmate of a prison for a year. He was staying at hotels and inns, and he would run away and not pay the bill. Well, pretty soon the law caught up with him and uh, put him in prison. He became quite physically ill and intermittently made resolutions to become different, but broke them almost as fast as I made them. In other words, he was saying, I want to become different. But then the next moment, maybe a day later, he was back to the same old George. He started to feel very um, empty and unhappy. But he wasn't really sure where to turn. How could I get that fulfillment? I know I need to change. I know I'm poor in spirit, but where can I get that? Well, at the age of 20, he writes this. One Saturday afternoon in November, I, walk, I took a walk with my friend Beta. 
He told me that he had begun to visit a Christian's home every Saturday where there was a prayer meeting. He said that they read the Bible, sang, prayed, and read a printed sermon. When I heard this, I felt as if I had found the treasure I had been seeking all my life. We went to the meeting together that evening. I did not understand the joy that believers have in seeing any sinner become interested in the things of God, so I apologized for coming. <laughs> so here he's going, I'm sorry, you know, that'd be like someone saying, coming to ASI or coming to your church, I'm so sorry for being here. <laughs> and you're, you're like, no, this is great, this is wonderful, but he didn't understand this at all. And so we sat down and sang a hymn. So this is where the commitment of his life started. Then Brother Kaiser knelt and asked a blessing on our meeting. His kneeling down made a deep impression on me, for I had never seen anyone on his knees before, nor had I ever prayed on my knees. The entire evening made a deep impression on me. I felt happy, although if I had been asked why, I could not have clearly explained it. Do you start to see that George was starting to experience something new, something fulfilling that he had never experienced before. And he said, you know what? I want to make a commitment here to follow this way. When we walked home, I said to Beta, all of our former pleasures are nothing in comparison with this evening, this one simple evening. Isn't that beautiful? His heart was touched by the Spirit of God. In regard to this experience, at more than 90 years of age, George Mueller said the following. And some of you might have already guessed that this was George Mueller. I was converted in November 1825, but I didn't come to the point of total surrender of my heart until four years later in July 1929. 1829. So, thank you. <laughs> Typo. In July 1829. So... It was then I realized my love for money, prominence, position, power, and worldly pleasure were all gone. God and he alone became my all in all. But one question I have is, what happened? What happened? When I read that, I said, and I read that in a devotional a few weeks ago, and I said, what? I want to know what happened in that four-year span because I want to go from that place of being not just committed to Christ, but fully submitted so that I can be used by God the same way that he was. It doesn't mean I'm going to do a bunch of orphanages, right? Because God does have a specific work for each one of us, but it means that God's name is going to be glorified to the maximal possible extent through me, and I will be able to fulfill the mission and the purpose that God has given me in my life. So what happened? Well, now he writes, my life became very different, although I did not give up every sin at once. I did give up my wicked companions, going to taverns, and habitual lying. So I guess he was still lying on occasion, but <laughs> at least the habitual lying was gone. <laughs> I read the scriptures, prayed often, loved the brethren, went to church with right motives, and openly professed Christ, although my fellow students laughed at me. So this is what actually started to change him, not just the commitment aspect, but it actually started to prepare him for full submission. In other words, he was practicing the truth. He was 
not only committed to the Lord, but he was actually following what God has asked him to do step by step. He was practicing in the little things to submit to God. He was studying the Bible. He was praying. He was having fellowship with other people. He was doing his best to say, Lord, help me to not be a liar. And he was witnessing, and he was involved in active service for others. And then came the crisis point. So George Mueller had learned how to submit to God in the little things along the way. But now, in 1829, he became quite physically ill. And he said, In my estimation, I was beyond recovery. Yet the weaker I became in body, the happier I was in spirit. Every sin I had ever committed was brought to mind. It reminds you of Jacob, right, when he was wrestling. But I realized that I was washed and made completely clean in the blood of Jesus. When my doctor came to see me, my prayer was, Lord, you know that he does not know what is best for me. Therefore, please direct him. When I took my medicine, my prayer was, Lord, you know that this medicine is no more than a little water. (laughs) Now, please, Lord, let it produce the effect which is for my good and for your glory. Let me either soon be taken to heaven or let me be restored. Lord, do with me as you think best. Does that sound like submission to you? And the reason he got to that point was because of the little decisions, the little behaviors, the the practice that he had done up to that point. I had a great deal of time to study the Bible while I recovered. During this time, God showed me that his word alone is our standard of judgment in spiritual things. The word can be explained only by the Holy Spirit, who is the teacher of his people. The Holy Spirit alone can teach us about our sinful state, show us the need of a Savior, enable us to believe in Christ, explain the scriptures to us, and help us preach the word. The Lord enabled me to put this to the test by laying aside my commentaries and almost every other book and simply reading the word of God. That first evening when I shut myself in in my room to pray and meditate over the scriptures, I learned more in a few hours than during the last several months. Isn't that amazing? Because what happened was that through the habitual study of the word over those years and and habitually following Christ in the little things, that had prepared him to meet that final great test where he was asked whether he was going to really submit to God in all things. And as he went through that stress, can you just imagine the the cloudiness that it was in his brain and how his brain was being disorganized and just like, you know, falling in love or pregnancy, right? There's that disorganization that was going on in the brain. And he got to that point and he said, Father, glorify thy name, not mine. And it was at that point where his mind was actually opened His heart was open. He was able to receive the word of God like he had never received it before. And he was able to attach to God in a deeper way than he had ever attached to anything in the past and really find that peace that passes all understanding. And that's really where he began to truly glorify God's name. His influence and work expanded rapidly. By 1836, the first orphanage was opened 
And he wrote this. He said, so many believers were harassed and distressed in mind or brought guilt upon their consciences on account of not trusting in the Lord. And that is, I will tell you, the 100% root of our, all of our problems right there on account of not trusting the Lord. This awakened in my heart the desire of setting before the church at large and before the world a proof that he has not in the least changed. And this seemed to me best done by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen even by the natural eye. And remember, he never asked a soul for money, right? Never asked, even through insinuation, because he wanted to glorify God's name. That was what he was called to Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted, of the reality of the things of God. This, then, was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. I certainly did for my heart desire to be used by God to benefit the bodies of poor children. But still, the first and primary object of the work was, and still is, that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need only by prayer and faith with anyone, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayers still. And that is what glorifies God's name when we are so fully reliant and trustful of him. By the way, I'm not, I know we're basically out of time, but I just want to say his library is only full of Bibles. That's all he had for his entire library, okay? <laughs> so, in closing, in growing from step two to step three, we want to actually allow stress to take us from being committed to being fully submitted to God's work. And how do we do this? Well, there's five steps. The first thing is, this is the first step. So, you know, ASI, we're talking about commitment, and that's wonderful, but that's not where things stop. That's really where the fun begins. We commit to Christ. We make that decision, and we spend time with Christ. Just like George Mueller started to spend time with Christ, he started spending time reading the Bible in prayer and in fellowship with other believers. Peter, the disciple, he started spending lots of time with Christ. But then, we need to, step three, embrace stress signals. Instead of going into avoidance, you know, one of my big things when someone asks me if, like my wife is usually the one that says, you seem stressed, you know. No, I'm not stressed, I'm fine. (laughs) I don't get stressed, right? We're in denial, but we actually need to recognize when we're in stress mode because when we're stressed out, that's an opportunity to actually change our way of behavior instead of going into fight or flight mode, submitting to God and practicing in the the little things of life. Ask to see yourself through his eyes. In other words, you know, when we we see the deficiencies and the problems that we um, are facing, when we are faced with all these, these 
things that need to change, it can be overwhelming. But when we see ourselves through his eyes, which is the same way that Peter saw himself when, he, when Christ looked at him, Christ gave him a look, yes, of sadness, but of inexpressible love and compassion. And Jesus was not hurt for himself. Really, Jesus was hurting for Peter and the pain that Peter was going through because of the decision he made. And when we see that, we can actually be strengthened. And when we see his infinite love to him, for us, what do you think happens? Do you think oxytocin is being released in our brain? Oxytocin is being released because we're connecting. We're connecting with the Lord. And that actually brings down that stress level and allows us to get into that mode of trusting and abiding. So, when you think about building muscle, when we think about exercise, well, doing intense exercise, what does it do to that muscle? It tears the muscle, right? But as it tears, it has the possibility of repairing and growing new attachments to, to, to the muscle in healthier ways so that it can actually become stronger, right? And I think that that's a good thing to think about when we're building heart muscle. In other words, when we're talking about allowing God to change our hearts. Yes, God is going to allow us to go through trials, through difficulties. He's going to allow us to go through intensely stressful time. And I don't know about you, but it seems like everywhere I look, I have acquaintances, relatives, friends, patients. The stress level is rising the pressure cooker is heating up, right? We're getting closer to this world's final hour. But God is doing that in his mercy because he's saying, I want you to be able to practice submitting to me in the small things of life so that when the greater crisis comes, the natural inclination will be, instead of going into fight or flight mode, it will actually be to submit to God's will. And as we're going through those stressful times, yes, it might feel like our heart is being torn out within us. And literally, you know, those nerve cells are being deranged and changed and things are happening in our mind that we don't even understand. But as we behold the beautiful face of Jesus and his love for us, his infinite love, even when we see those imperfections, even when we see the problems our mind will be able to open and we'll be able to detach from those things of the world and attach to him in a deeper way, in a more meaningful way than we ever thought possible. It's like my grandpa says, he says, when I look within me, I get depressed. When I look around me, I get distressed. But when I look to him, I am blessed, I am caressed, and I am at rest. Praise God that he wants to give us that rest in him that will really be the peace that passes all understanding. Why don't we stand for a word of prayer? Dear Father, I thank you so much for your mercy and your compassion towards us. I thank you that through the gift of Jesus, you showed us that you love us so much and that we are so valuable to you and that you will go to whatever extent necessary to show us how valuable we are to you. 
I thank you so much even for the difficulties, for the stresses and the trials that are brought upon us because these are truly your instruments for helping us to detach from the things of this world and attach to you. Lord, every one of us here today wants to glorify your name. And I pray that you would help us to submit in the little things of life day by day, in the little stresses, that we would embrace those as opportunities to allow us to, to form that habit of truly trusting you in all ways and in all things, so that when the greater crises come, we can be completely submitted to you and that your name truly can be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.